People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we have the great pleasure to welcome over the line from the UK the great author John Boyne, who is going to be talking to us about his new book, A Ladder to the Sky. Welcome, John, to our studio in Johannesburg. Thank you. Good to talk to you. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on the line. And as, uh, as I said, you are a very famous author. John is known most famously for his book, The Boy in Stripe Pajamas, which has been made into a movie. It's been read all around the world. But today we're going to focus on his newest book. It's just come out. And as I said, it's called A Ladder to the Sky. It's published by Doubleday. And as I said to you a little bit earlier, it is deliciously wicked. But before we get to the book, I'm going to ask you to please introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms. Okay, well, um, I am an Irish writer, uh, born, born in Dublin, and I still live here. And I write books for both adult readers and younger readers, and I tend to switch between the two each time. Um, but I've published 17 books now in total. And those books now include A Letter to the Scar. Can I, can I ask you, without giving too much away, just to give us a brief overview of the story of Letter to the Scar? Yeah, well, it's about uh, a young aspiring writer called Morris Swift, who is filled with ambition, um, but doesn't have very much talent. Um, he has a terrible, he can't think of stories. He has no imagination. So in order to succeed in the world, he tends to steal other people's stories and their lives. He attaches himself to more successful, um, famous people, famous writers, and kind of manipulates them um, through his charms, through his seductive appeal. And usually they come out of it the worse off while his life gets better and better. But of course, he has ups and downs in that life and... Uh, without giving any spoilers, of course, by the end of the book, there's the possibility that he will have to pay for his, his mentality. The, the, that's very much without any spoilers. But as I said, this book was its deliciously wicked. Uh, I really, when I finished the book, I, I missed this intense reader relationship that I had with your main character, Morris Swift. I had so much fun in reading the book. It is dark. There are lots of serious themes. But it's, it's, it's a lot of fun as well. Did you have fun writing this novel? I, I did. You know, I've been publishing for almost 20 years, so I know the industry and the people in it um, very well. And I've seen a lot over those years. You know, I've met a lot of writers, and um, I've seen the way we all behave in terms of you know, pursuing our ambitions and uh, hoping to, to build readerships and the, the way people can use other people at times. So I wanted it to be somewhat a satire on the publishing industry for people to have fun with it. I was having fun with it. Um, but also to talk more seriously about uh, questions of ambition and what we will do to give ahead. And also the idea of literary ownership. That, you know, if you tell me a story, um, do, do you still own that story or do I? Who has the right to actually write it down? The, the, those themes come up the whole way through the book. We'll get to that a little bit later, but I want to ask you first, this wicked humor and this very dark humor that, you, that you're able to bring onto the page, how do you do it? Uh, well, I guess, you know, most writing is always about the rewriting, isn't it? But, you, you know, you write a first draft, and in that draft you kind of find your story, and then you rewrite and rewrite, and you, you make it as interesting. 
honestly as possible and maybe twist things around if you possibly can. And, um, you know, that's what, that's what writing is all about, really. To focus on the book now, uh, you, the book's made up of a few parts, and in between the first part and the second part, you've got an interlude. You call it an interlude, which I thought was simply brilliant. Morris Swift and his older patron, Dash Hardy, spend a night at Gore Vidal's villa on the Amalfi Coast. You resurrect the voice and the persona of Gore Vidal so well. How did you do that? Well, I've always been a big reader of Gore Vidal. I've always enjoyed his book very much, and I've read a lot of them. And when I was writing that section, I watched a lot of documentaries, uh, just you know, capture that voice and his wit and how sharp he is. Of course, when you're writing, um, when you use Gore Vidal as a character, it's a bit like using Oscar Wilde or something. You really have to raise your game and make him as clever and witty as you possibly possibly can. You don't want to um, diminish his, his status. So I worked really, probably harder on that section than, than any part of the book in terms of just making sure that every line that came out of his mouth felt like it, it could have been a Gore Vidal line. It really did, and it's the witticism and the the cattiness, uh, the 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 elderly lion of the literary world it really jumps off the page. I was laughing a lot during that section of the book. Uh, you really did resurrect a voice that's long gone. How true are your depictions of the publishing industry? The competitiveness among writers, struggle to get published getting dropped by publishers, the whole festival circuit? Mm. I, I think it's, it's, it's mostly true. Um, I mean, I, I, I love the publishing industry on the bargain, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like teasing it a little bit in this book. But you know, there are, um, like with any industry, there's always going to be people who behave badly, people who use others to get ahead. Um, We've all seen writers who've come and gone over the years, not always because their books aren't good, but maybe because they haven't had the support from uh, the publishers that, that they, they should have. Um, and oftentimes, writers who are maybe less or, or a bit more insecure um, can treat other writers at festivals in a, in a less than pleasant way. You know, I always heard that the more successful writers, the more, the more easy he or she is to deal with because they don't really have a chip on their shoulder. They're just kind of content with their life. Um, but in, in general, I think it's, I hope it's good nature living at the, at the industry rather than, um, rather than just kind of off. During all your time in the industry, and 70 novels is a lot to have published, have you met anyone like Morris Swift, that level of ambition? Uh, I, I, I have, yeah, but I'm mean, not quite as bad as Morris, I think. Um, you know, Morris really does some awful things as the book goes on, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was originally inspired by a, um, a, a, a relationship I had with a, a young aspiring writer who kind of attached himself to me a little bit. And, and you know, perhaps in my own insecure ego, I was happy to be attached to. And, you know, but it ultimately felt, you know, I was just sort of being used for introductions to agents editors and other writers and so on. And, you know, coming out of that, I thought to myself, you know, well, I wonder why... I wonder why I'm so easy to manipulate, really, at this point in my life. You know, what is it that's missing for me that, that, I, that I want that? And what would make a person want to do that in the first place? But that was just really a starting point for the novel. It wasn't, it's not based on that person or anything, but it's just, it, it, it opened up questions to me about, um, I suppose, my own insecurities, which are 
reflected in the first part of the book with Eric Ackerman. And um, and and um, the, the the kind of people that, that might take advantage of those. Uh, I'd like to ask you also, and the, that whole idea of talent and and ambition, to focus first on talent. What is talent? Can it be grown? Can a creative writing course improve talent? Can a good editor or a good agent improve it? Is there a minimum that a, a, a great author has to start off with? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be nurtured and it can grow. I think you, you have to have some sort of inherent ability at the start. Um, but I think creative writing courses are very, very good. I've, um, I've been a student on them when I was you know, a young man in my early 20s. I've taught on them occasionally since. And a creative writing course is very helpful for, you know, first thing what it does, it gives a young writer readers, which is what they, what they need. And if you go in with the right attitude, where you are, you are open to hearing people's criticisms, you're not just looking for praise, then it can be a really, really positive experience. It doesn't work for everybody. And sometimes creative writing courses get a bad reputation from people. People say, you know, you can't teach people how to write. But of course, they never say that about going to art school or about going to film school. And there's no question that, you know, a student who does a year on a creative writing course, unless they're completely idiotic, they will be producing better work at the end of it than they did at the start. So in general, I think they're, they're actually very, very good. But you do need to have um, some sort of ability at the start, some sort of talent that can be nurtured and encouraged. We're in conversation with John Boyne. His latest book is A Letter to the Scar. It is a deliciously dark and wickedly funny book about an author who has tons of ambition but very little talent. We'll be continuing the conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with John Boyne, the author of the just released A Letter to the Scar. He's also the author last year of The Heart's Invisible Furies and most famously for Boy in Stripe Pajamas. Your thoughts, of an, your thoughts, John, on ambition? Well, I guess we all have it. And I remember what it was like to be a young, you know, in my early 20s and writing constantly, desperately wanting to get published, hoping to be able to make a living um, as a writer and not knowing whether that would happen, you know, and whether, whether I was going to be good enough or not. And I was extremely ambitious. I'm still ambitious, you know, I still, but my ambition now is always to just try to write a better book every time, you know, to try to write something really good. My ambition then was to just get started, you know, to get into the publishing industry. Um, but I don't think publishing is any different than probably any other industry in that sense, that people should be ambitious. I mean, you want to do the best you can with your life to achieve something. Um, and I don't think there's, um, I don't think it, it, publishing is sort of marked out as uh, particularly original for that. I think most young people feel that way. Sometimes when thinking about John Boyne, it's almost as if this one person is this one body is inhabited by two separate people. It's like a multiple personality disorder or not so much disorder because you are able to bridge so many divides, challenging historical fiction for young readers and then really brilliant literary adult fiction as well. Uh, you, you manage to, to really, really be two people in one body. Um, how do you how do you do it? And you must have quite a punishing publishing schedule because you can come out with 
a book not only every year, but sometimes you have a, a book for your younger readers and a book for your adult readers within the space of one year. How do you write historical? Um, yeah, how do you write at all? Well, I think I often think that you know books are almost each book is almost written in in um, response to the previous one. You know that if I write a book for young readers, say about um, the First World War, then once I finished it, you know my mind wants to do something completely different and uh, next. So uh, I my imagination is open to a whole new world. I think you know I'm reading all the time. I'm writing all the time. And because of that, you know, my brain, I feel, is, is always open to ideas and open to suggestions. And I still, like, I, I, I absolutely love the, the, the act of writing. You know, I, I love sitting down at my desk and um, coming up with ideas, coming up with stories, and then, you know, rewriting them and working on them for, for a year, 18 months, whatever. And it still gives me enormous pleasure. I'm not one of those writers who says, you know, well, I hate it, you know, I wish I didn't have to do it. I, I really genuinely enjoy it. And as for a published, uh, punishing um, schedule, I guess I don't find it punishing. I um, I don't have another job. So this is you know this is what I do with my days, and um, it just it's it's just what I do all day. I I'm not actually under any pressure from my publisher or anything to produce a book a year. Nobody ever uh, asks me to do that. It's just you know I write them, and when they're ready, they're ready, and and I and I give them in, and then we do some editing and then the book is ready and um but yeah i mean i i i, I admit that uh, I, I probably published uh, quite a lot of books at this point and um sometimes i wonder you know is it too many but you know but then i sit down at my desk and i'm just writing away and what can i do you 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 really managed to put a lot of uh, a lot of really great writing into your book as i said i read i read um, a letter to the sky in a few days and uh, I was laughing. I was taking time off just to think. Reading, I was rereading passages again and again just to enjoy, just to enjoy the actual writing. But then the story itself also packs, packs quite a lot of punches. Uh, to be able to do that so well, do you? Once you've published the book, do you have a like a paternal sense of pride for your books? They're your creations. Yeah, I mean, when I see them. Um you know, lined up on the shelf. In fact, where I'm talking from now in my house is a shelf where I just have, you know, a copy of each of the books. And, um, yeah, I do feel proud. It's my, it's my work. It's, it's what I've done with my life. And um, I do feel proud of them. I don't go back and read them. It's, you know, I never read a book after it's been published because I've obviously worked so hard and read it so many times during the writing process. And maybe I think sometimes when I'm an old man, I'll, I'll go back and read them all. But um, I definitely do feel... Um, out of them, and some succeed more than others artistically. You know, you can't knock it out of the park every single time. You do the very best that you can, and some sort of stand higher in my head than others. But um, yeah, in general, I do. I yeah, I feel, I feel proud of them. What what message would you like readers to take home from a letter to the sky? Well, first off, I guess you know, with any book I write, I just want them to get lost in the story, to really enjoy it, to to, to lose themselves, hopefully, in a good story and in interesting characters. And I think the the central character here, because he is a little bit ambiguous, you know, the nightmare of readers, perhaps, sometimes feeling a little sympathy for him, sometimes feeling horrified by him, and being able to talk about him. I think that's the best thing you can have out of a book is is not a totally black or white sort of you know. Heroes and villains, but 
interesting complex characters because we're we in real life we are we are all interesting complex characters we 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 do moments of where we where we behave really really well and moments where we don't so I guess what I'd like to say from it is just um, to to lose themselves in the story and then Morris and maybe wonder whether they would ever do the things he would do in order to, to succeed. You you really made me have that conversation with myself while I was reading it at the end of the book. And as I said, it is it's it's dark and it's funny and it's it's uh, it's a powerful it's a powerful read. What do you read and which authors do you read? Oh, I read a lot, you know, I'm a compulsive reader. I I I I have like favorite authors of course, but I generally kind of keep up with what people do, you know, what's been published this month. I like to read a lot of first-time writers. I'm interested in what's going on in the, you know, in the literary world. And of course, I you know, meet a lot of writers at festivals, so it's good to have read their books. And if people are talking about a book, then, you know, I want to be able to have an opinion on it. So, you know, I, I, I read fairly um, widely, just whatever anybody's talking about, really. And what can we expect from John Boyne in the next year or so? Uh, well, it's been about four years since I published a book for young readers. But I do have a new book for young readers coming next year, so um, that will be the next publication. And um, after that, I'm I'm just working away on the new adult novel at the moment, in very early stages. It's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the line from the UK. Uh, as I've been saying the whole way through this interview, and I've been telling people all around me that I led it to the sky. But John Boyne is a great read. It's it's dark. It's funny. It's also very thought-provoking, and thank you for taking the time to speak to us here in Johannesburg. It's been, as for me, it's been it's been a wonderful opportunity, and I, I just hope that uh, the message of uh, that you're talking about here, writing and the, the life of an author, I hope it gets out and about to more people over the airwaves of our station, and that people appreciate what goes into writing a book. And uh, the, the the ambition and the talent that uh, underpins all your writing. Thank you. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is People of the Book on one hundred one point nine High FM, and we have the great pleasure to welcome back to our studios the author James Brabazon to discuss his debut thriller uh, and his second book. The book is called The Break Line. It's published by Michael Joseph, part of Penguin Random House. And welcome to our studios in Johannesburg, James. Thanks very much, Stephen. It's really great to be back again. This is the second time James is in conversation with us here on People of the Book. He was in South Africa for the launch of his first book called My Friend the Mercenary a few years ago. But now we're going to be discussing his thriller, The Break Line. To start off with, James, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms? <laughs> well, um, I am uh, a journalist uh, by profession. I started off originally as um, a reportage photographer, um, uh, taking photographs, first of all, in the U.K., uh, and then working abroad, and I very quickly started specialising in conflict. Um, and I went from taking just taking the photographs to taking photographs and writing the stories that went with them as well. 
and rather than just specialising in news or um, breaking events, I sort of very quickly started um, writing features and, uh, and, and shooting feature stories. That led me into TV, where I started working uh, mainly on half-hour current affairs documentary-type programmes, again, focus always on conflict. And I did um, some work for special assignments in South Africa, um, and then I went on to work mainly for Channel 4 in the UK, but also the BBC, um, HBO, um, I have something on Netflix at the moment. So there's a range of clients, but always, you know, focusing on conflicts, the consequences of conflicts, um, and, you know, sh- shooting the films myself, directing and producing them, usually working in a very small team, sometimes maybe just myself or myself and a reporter and an assistant producer, uh, and trying to get into places which are hard to access and ask people as many awkward questions as we can. So that's my, that's my background as, as, as a, a filmmaker in hostile environments. Um, and as you said, you know, a while ago I wrote a memoir, My Friend the Mercenary, um, which really recounted the time that I spent in West Africa um, in 2002, 2003, um, during the Liberian Civil War. Um, and... This new um, thriller, which is a big departure for me, um, really sort of draws on that experience and is very much set in Sierra Leone in the present day, um, as well as in in Venezuela and uh, uh, the UK and in Ireland. And it draws on that real-life experience, but with uh, a very, very pronounced thriller I really like your introduction to yourself. So many authors just talk about the fact that they've written a book and then we move on to the second question. But you're a fully three-dimensional, even four-dimensional person with so much more than just the books that you've written. Can you give us an an outline uh, for, without giving too much away, about the thriller, the the break line? Okay, well, I'll do my best with this. But as you well know, there is a... uh, a spoiler in the middle, so I've got to be very careful about what I say. So if this sounds a little vague, bear with me um, because I just don't want to. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone that hasn't written it, uh, that hasn't read it. So I, so the, the central character is um, a British spy, assassin, sniper called Max McLean, and Max works for a very secretive black operations unit in the UK and essentially does the UK's dirty work for them. People they want disappeared, people they want killed. He goes and does that. And he's given an assignment which is really not as advertised and it very quickly unravels on him. And his whole life, his whole professional career has been based around following orders, and essentially killing the person he's been told to kill. And he has a crisis of conscience. And he decides to do something different than he was asked to do. And from that unravels 
a whole series of consequences that were unforeseeable at the time. And he's then given a chance to redeem himself and go on his last mission if he wants it to be his last mission. But also, that too isn't what it seems. And the question is, you know, where will this lead him? And having been someone who has all the instruments of state at his disposal, all the backing of special forces and intelligence services, of money, of weapons and equipment, of logistics, everything behind him, Max McLean is going to get to a position where suddenly all of those things potentially are ranged against him. And he has to work by himself, almost by himself, cut off, alone, and working out, crucially, who his friends are and who his enemies are, and whether there is a clear division between the two. You did it well. You, you, you placed the novel in its position, but without giving too much away, because there's a lot that could be given away, which will just spoil the reading experience. While I was reading The Break Line, I realized I was talking to the product manager here in Johannesburg uh, at Penguin Random House, and we were discussing your book. And it got me thinking about other books that it, it made me, it, it, it reminded me of. And there's quite a few references that I came up with. Obviously, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which you quote in your epigraph at the beginning. But then also... Yuval Noah Harari's Homo Deus, for obvious reasons, and also his new book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and technological advances in, 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 bio, in, in biology. And also, strangely enough, you got me thinking about a Kazuo Ishiguro novel with that slightly detached narration, but a very strong investigation of interior thought processes. That, th- those are the different... Uh, Connections that are made, from your perspective, what, what did anything go besides just the story and the plot and the characters go into a break the break line? Well, what I wanted to do from the outset was to create a world in which the details were absolutely plausible, so that although once you get into this novel, you will realise that the the meta arc, the overall story, is fundamentally implausible because it's, it's a novel, it's a, it's a work of pure fiction. I wanted to make sure that all of the little details, the world building, was all as accurate as I could get it. So whether you were a scientist or a soldier, whether you were a spy or a sniper, whether you were an aid worker or, you know, a barkeeper you would be able to read this and say, yeah, actually, that's true to my experience. I get that. That's, that that works for me. So, and out of that world can then grow something which is beyond real. And one of the things that working as a journalist for so many years has taught me is how to listen to people. I've filmed thousands of hours of interviews and then I've recorded, I've replayed them, listened to them, edited them and presented them for broadcast in a way which is clear and understandable. 
And some of those la- interviews have been in foreign languages, some of them have been in English, some have been in languages I understand, others have had to be translated. And the main point is that you you really start to begin to see how people actually speak. And that and how people actually speak and how dialogue is represented in a novel or how an interview is represented on television are two completely different things. If you actually write how people speak, it's almost incomprehensible because we perform uh, an, an editorial act while we listen to other people. And we filter and we snip and chop and pick out the bits we're interested in and we ignore the ums and ahs. So what I wanted to do was make sure that I created a world which was plausible and in a world in which people spoke to each other in a way which was fundamentally realistic, understandable, but realistic. And that process of people communicating with each other about very difficult things, about death and about the consequences of death and loss and bereavement, I wanted that conversation to continue internally. If you're writing in the first person and you have a strong, you know, you've got a strong narrative voice, that narrative voice is going to continue internally and it becomes an ongoing dialogue with the reader through the book. So that voice had better be believable. It had better be real. And it better be understandable. And I, I suppose my enduring hope is that people come out the other end of this, knowing obviously that Max McLean is a fictional character, but feeling that they have had a meaningful dialogue in the process of reading this. And who ultimately they're having that dialogue with, of course, is themselves. It's not, it's not with me. It's not with Max because Max doesn't exist. Um, it's with it's with it's with yourself, and I think that's the greatest, in my in my estimation, the greatest thing that a writer could hope to achieve. And I'm not saying by any means I have, by the way, it's uh, you know strive towards it, and um, is that you provoke an internal dialogue in in the reader, um, and that's uh, that's what I've that's what I've striven to do. It's a uh, it's a thriller, you know. It's 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 entertainment. It's fun. It's Adrenal, it's exciting. If I've if I've done my job properly, it will be those things. And if I haven't, I apologise. Um, but also, it's tackling things that I've had to deal with in the course of my work: violence, um, death, bereavement, um, and how you find meaning and happiness out of that. And I think that I've tried, in a light way, in a you know, in a in a thrillerish way to engage with those ideas, to try and make Max, you know, a rounded, proper person. So when he does something, it's understandable to the reader why he would do that, because they understand how he thinks and feels. You definitely did strike conversations between myself and Mornay in the Johannesburg offices of Penguin Random House. So you, you are getting conversations okay. going already. We are, we are in okay. conversations. <laughs> We, we are in conversation. Of course, as a writer, as a, as a writer, you never know what those conversations are going to be or where they'll go. It's a bit like um, when you publish a book. It's a bit like releasing um, 
you know, a bird into the wild, it flies off, and where it goes, who sees it, how it affects people, and most of the time, you never know. We are in conversation with James James Brabazon. He's the author of The Break Line. It's published, published by Michael Joseph. It's a thriller set in West Africa, in the UK, and in Venezuela. We'll be back with more conversations straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with James Brabazon for his book, The Break Line. He's got shout-outs from Sebastian Junger, also from Greg Hurwitz, who's the author of Orphan X, who we've interviewed here in the studios, and also James Swallow. So this is... This is uh, fast-paced thrillers. Uh, it's a fast-paced thriller. As James mentioned, there's a certain amount of sus- suspension of belief in some of the some of the aspects of the plot, but it just makes the book even more exciting. You're talking about the main character Max McLean, but you also create some very, very, very rem- memorable part in you know, a part players within the novel, Roberts and Juliet, who live in in in, in West Africa. But also the one who really jumped off the page a lot for me was the Israeli living in Sierra Leone. That's Ezra. You've got him spot on. Your Hebrew quotes like betach, bediyuk, idiotim. You know, it's like you, you have to know people to be able to create an Israeli with <laughs> such uh, s- such perfection. How did you do that? Well, obviously, just to, to re-stress, this is a work of, of pure fiction. However... However, um, you know, the Israelis pop up all over the place, um, and uh, including in West Africa. And during the time that I've spent um, working across the continent of Africa, not just in West Africa, but, but all over the continent, um, I've met um, uh, different um, Israelis working in different fields, and... Um, uh, military, private security, humanitarian, in the media. And I've spent um, a fair amount of time on and off over the years making films uh, in Israel as well. So I have, I have to say, put my hands up, absolutely, that I had a very strong sense of how I wanted the Hebrew to come across and how I wanted that interaction to be. And... Having listened to people, to Israelis who speak English but mix Hebrew in as they're speaking English, I had a good sense of how I wanted that to be. But absolutely, you know, both hands up in the air to this. I have a, uh, a couple of really good friends um, in Israel, um, one in particular, um, who went over the Hebrew with a fine tooth comb for me to make sure that it was absolutely correct. Um, and and spot on. So a yeah, massive thank you to him for that. Um, and indeed, elsewhere in the book, you know, with the Russian and Irish and Spanish, um, uh, I've also had you know really great help from some great people who've uh, basically <laughs> saved me from embarrassing myself. But if there are any errors in there, then they are they're, then they're mine alone. Uh, I have to say. Um, but yeah, Ezra is a is a complicated character. Ezra, and um, you know one of the sort of themes that I've worked on in my as a journalist, um, particularly uh, at war, is 
is nuance and a moral nuance. And it's very easy to write people off as either being good guys or bad guys and to make snap judgments about people because of their background, their profession, something that they may have done. Um, and I, I'm very nervous about that. And I, I'm sort of reluctant to say that we live in an age which is increasingly, in moral terms, binary, increasing black and white. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but sometimes it can feel that way. And my experience of dealing with people in, in war has been the people of uh, people's character is usually very, very unclear cut between those two poles of, you know, of, of good and evil. Even people that I've seen commit the most heinous crimes have also demonstrated compassion and, um, and understanding. And so I, you know, I felt super careful about, you know, not, not writing people off. Um, and I think that, you know, people that have worked in a military capacity, um, people that have done perhaps things that we would find distasteful or unconscionable, it doesn't mean that they aren't redeemable or necessarily even bad people. They may just be different people who've lived a different life and are on a different path and are finding their own routes towards you know, an accommodation with whatever God they believe in, whatever moral code they have. So, I, you know, obviously, you know, there are some things which need to be condemned out of hand because they are un unconscionable and, and appalling. But to write someone off, to write a person off entirely, I find that very difficult. Um, so someone like Ezra and some of the other characters in the book, you know, some of them are clearly good guys and girls. You know, they're clearly doing the right thing for the right reasons, or at least trying to. And there are others who, you know, shady past, perhaps. Maybe they've done some bad things. But ultimately, you know, they're striving to live by a code. And I think that's the thing with, with Ezra. He has a code. He has a code. It's a, it's a martial code. Um, and perhaps it's a religious code. I mean, that's not explicit. That's not explicit in the book, but perhaps it is. Um, and it's something that he tries to live by. And despite being a violent person with a violent past, he's trying to do the right thing by people that he cares for. And I'm working on, at the moment, the sequel to The Break Line. And... Some of these characters might be making a return. I don't want to give anything away here much more than that, but I think if you like Ezra, then I think you'll be happy with some of the characters that will make a return in the sequel. So, so, so we can look forward to a, a second Max McLean thriller coming out sometime in the next year or so. Yeah, that's right. Max is, uh, Max is already back in, uh, in in trouble in deep water and um, I'm, I'm writing that adventure right now How did you find the transition from journalist and documentary maker to thriller writer? The transition to writing fiction from working as a journalist it's 
the, the, I suppose the, the best way of describing it is liberating. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, because for, for the whole of my career, the, the watchwords that have governed everything I've done have been credibility and authenticity. Everything as a journalist must be obviously true. It must be authentic. It must be credible and rigorously so, and for good reason. And suddenly, as a novelist, I find myself being overnight a professional liar. <clears throat> I'm suddenly paid to make up things and to um, not tell the truth. And that's actually, that's a sort of uh, a strange shift to go through. And on the one hand, I've resisted going too far down that path because, like I said before, you know, I want to create a world in which things are real and are recognisably true to people who live in those worlds. Um, I know, for example, that um, going back to Ezra, um, people like Ezra have read this and said, yes, that's what it might be like being Ezra. So um, I want to keep that that credibility and that authenticity there. But of course, with the overall arc of the story, then that's, you know, it's a product of imagination from my mind. And I realized very quickly that actually, just because you're writing fiction doesn't mean that what you're doing is not credible and not authentic. And actually, when you're dealing with some of these moral themes of friendship, moral judgments, death, bereavement, um, meaning, relationships. It's, as possi it's possible to be as authentic and as credible writing fiction as it is making a documentary. In fact, I would probably go so far as to say, in fact, I uh, have done previously, that I, I think that ultimately, for me, I've sort of reached a, a point with making films where, although they were truthful and although they were credible, they lacked beauty. And it's a very difficult discussion to have as a documentarian of whether truth and beauty are compatible and the thing about writing fiction is that they are compatible with one another you can be truthful to yourself to your story to your subjects but you can also you can also do things create something which is internally coherent and, and beautiful and i think it's that struggle between truth and beauty which is really the struggle between um <clears throat> being a novelist and being a documentarian. It's that, it's that eternal, eternal tussle. And I wish I, I, I wish I could claim some originality and having come up with that idea, but, idea, but I think that the ancient Greeks first <laughs> lit on that. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a long process, put it that way. We're in conversation with James Brabazon. He's the author of The Break Line. And uh, this is quite, a, I think this is very profound uh, stuff that you're saying, the beauty in fiction and the truth in fiction. 
uh, I didn't think we'd get so so deep with the war correspondent, but it's uh, it's actually it's uh, for for a, a, a host of a book show, a weekly book show. It's wonderful to delve very deep with our authors that we interview and get like the real the real the real uh, currents of creativity and tension that underpins their writing. Uh, it's it's an eye opener. Last question. Uh, you've already answered the right, the one I was going to ask you as the last one. Is there uh, is there another Max McLean books? So I'll ask the penultimate one that I've written down. When you're not writing and making documentaries, who or what genres do you read? Well, when I'm when I'm writing, I have to be very careful about what I read. And because I am weak and a sponge, <laughs> if I start reading F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, I find myself, you know, starting to try and compose sentences like him. And if I start reading Hemingway, I start writing, you know, very kind of bare, stripped-back sentences, which are, you know, just pale imitations of, of those, you know, brilliant masters. So I have to be very careful what I read in case it starts to interfere with my own voice. As soon as I stop writing, then, you know, all bets are off. So I, what I try and do are read things which are completely different to what I'm writing. So there's no real genre crossover. So at the moment, um, I'm reading a very slim novel by Patrick Lee Fermor called The Violins of Saint-Jacques um, which um, you know I just would dip into and read a couple of pages of and Fermor's prose is so completely different to anything that I would write um, there's no danger of um, uh, of uh, contamination as it were and Fermor's brilliant as well he transports you into a completely different world um, and then you know I think quite visually and um, I try and, when I'm writing the, the chapters, I try and think of them really as, you know, from my filmmaking background, as, as scenes or sequences of one building and leading it to another. And I do, I'm a, I'm a sucker for watching thrillers um, and, um, uh, on, uh, at the cinema and, uh, and on TV. So, I, you know, I, I kind of, I'm always sort of interested in how people visually represent the thriller genre. It's fascinating. And also, always fascinating to see how filmic treatments of, um, of well-known authors, so how does, how does Matare translate to film? Um, how did it you know, translate in the 60s? How does it translate now? I think that's, that's really that's interesting. Um, and, you know, if I'm not reading and writing and making films... Um, I, I live uh, part of the time in London and most of the time I live on the south coast of England I live right on the beach um, I look out, I'm looking out my window right now and the first landfall that I can see is Calais in France um, I spend a lot of time uh, down here um, walking the cliffs and thinking about <clears throat> what's going to happen to Max McLean next um, what's going to happen in the sequel to the break line. And, you know, I have two small children down here who are, well, actually, they're not a small anymore, they're growing up. I spend a lot of time with them and we go exploring. And I'm very, I like to try and, I don't 
travel as much for work as I used to. Um, you know, I'm not spending months on end in up in the mountains or in jungles anymore. Um, but I like to spend as much time as I can um, deep in the countryside with them, exploring, learning, um, teaching them the things that I learned when I was a child, uh, and seeing them, uh, you know, understand and and and, and explore their environment. We run out of time, but I could continue listening to you all day long. It's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> to have you once again in our studio uh, to really hear the deep creative processes of, uh, of of an author, someone who's taken his talent from journalism and document document making documents do, making documentaries and then putting his lifetime of experience into a thriller. It's it's been wonderful. I look forward to the second Max McLean novel when it comes out, uh, thriller when it comes out, in, in, in hopefully sometime next year. And thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much of your of yourself and your and and your writing with us. Thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Stephen. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. It's great great to be back on air with you.